What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode 162 of the Just an Inside podcast, a show where we talk to people involved in the world of alternative music and their journey through it. Uh, my name, as always, is Tim Birkbeck, and I'm actually in a good mood today. Um, Got to admit, it's been a bit mentally draining the past few weeks, just with partly coronavirus, partly work stresses, partly home stresses and stuff like that, but I've been pretty productive over the last few days and I'm feeling like I'm getting back to my old self which is a positive thing and I might actually be getting some time off and going away for a little bit which I'll keep everyone informed with not whether you want to know or not but I like to keep everyone in my loop for some reason rather than not and just get away have a little recharge but yeah so things are on the up but anyway nobody's here to listen to me rabbit on about my life story um but as always, at the top of the show, I do just want to say, if you like what you hear, then please subscribe, rate, review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. Really, really helps. And if you want to support us directly, then you can do so over on the Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. Right, that's all that rambling out of the way. Um, just one quick note of news that I want to mention before we get into this week's guest. Um, the rescheduled Outbreak Fest has been announced uh, this week, I'm sure most people are aware of but for those who don't uh it's been announced for the weekend of january 25th 2021 um it's gonna be a three-day event up in manchester rather than sheffield as it was scheduled to be this summer uh bands that have been announced so far include knock loose youth of today vein zabalba drain fiddlehead and many many more uh i personally am really really looking forward to it I know there's been a lot of talk like online uh, around sort of the lack of diversity and the lack of sort of uh, women in the lineup, but I have hope and I'm optimistic that the promoters have listened to what people have said and I'm hoping that'll be addressed in the next set of announcements for the festival. I don't know whether I'm being naive in that view. Some people who I've spoken to think I am, but that's just my personal view. I'm like I'm hyped to see some of those bands specifically drain, but yeah, I get I understand the the sentiment, and we always hope to see change. So let's keep our fingers crossed. Uh, also, on announcements, as I mentioned in last week's episode, we've got a new football podcast. It's called Punks on the Pitch. Uh, it's officially now launched. There's a pilot episode which you can check out on uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Deezer, Acast. Um, it's not on Apple Podcasts yet for some reason. They're taking forever to validate my program even though this goes out on there but hey ho hopefully it'll be out there for when the first official episode goes out on this friday um so if you like football if you like alternative music then there might be something there for you uh you can check it out on all social media it's punks with an x on the pitch uh on instagram and twitter and facebook if you search punks on the pitch podcast it will come up so yeah come join us it's hoping to be a lot of fun um, right, let's get into this week's guest, and I am joined by uh, guitarist of Fam, vocalist and bassist of Thieves Guild, Chris Carraway. Um, I, I reached out to Chris on a bit of a whim, just purely because of the position I know that Fam hold in the hardcore world. Uh, previous guest in, includes uh, Fam's vocalist, Cat. so if you want to check that out, go back in the back catalogue and check that one out. But I wanted to kind of get Chris on because I know... He's a very sort of politically minded man and he's got some really strong views and not takes, but from talking to him, like you can tell he's he's a man who's kind of educated himself and 
has a very strong moral com- compass and I really wanted to kind of dig into that a bit more. So, yeah, we talk about him kind of helping build up a uh, scene in North Carolina, uh, his relationship with being straight edge, which I think he's got a really in- interesting perspective on that. So it was cool to have that conversation with him um, and what it means for him to be a public defender in his day job and how that kind of meshes with the punk world as well. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, and we also, we kind of touched upon it briefly during the chat, but literally the day or two days after we recorded this conversation, Fam had a, a live stream uh, over on Cavolt uh, Nation, Cult Nation, I don't know how they pronounce it, um, but it's worth checking out. I will put the link to the YouTube video in the show notes for everyone to go check out because it's really cool and it's really well sort of put together and edited, so I recommend checking that out. Anyway, sit back, enjoy the chat I have with Chris, and I'll see you on the other side. Right, joining me this week on the Justin Insight podcast is guitarist of hardcore bands Fam and uh, Thieves Guild, Chris Carraway. Chris, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day. Um, how is everything? How's sort of life treating you at the moment? Uh, I mean, everything is uh, terrible, but you know. <laughs> yeah. That being said, you know I'm I'm hanging in there. Um, you know, sort of living through the collapse of. Uh, the waning American empire and everything sort of going on. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I'm I'm doing fortunately okay during this. Yeah, and oh, we'll get into it in a bit more sort of detail later down the line, but obviously at the moment there's sort of big kind of thing, well, in general there's huge things going on in your country, but obviously an election sort of forthcoming kind of thing. So what, like... I'd, Obviously, you don't want to get too bogged down in that, but like, how's kind of, I guess, the general consensus and feeling at the moment over there? Because obviously, here in the UK, we only see headline figures and stuff. But what's the kind of general feeling over there in the states at the moment? Uh, pretty doomy. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, no one is, no one thinks things are going to get better anytime soon, um, and nor nor yeah. should they. Um, and I mean, there's. You know, everyone wants Trump gone, but most people aren't particularly too excited about Biden as a candidate. I certainly, I certainly yeah, am yeah. not. Um, and it's, I don't think anyone's optimistic about the next couple of months. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Well, let's say, I don't want to dwell on it too long. We'll get on to talking about the fun stuff, which is music, music and stuff like that. So how I always kind of open up these conversations is to ask my guests, like, what was their first exposure to alternative music? So what kind of turned you on to sort of the alternative spectrum of music? I think it was Nirvana. Um, yeah. You know, I was in middle school, um, which is like ages, fuck, I don't remember what age it's like ages, like 12, 13 or whatever. Um, hmm. Sort of like coming to the realization that I was not cool um (laughs) and you know that sort of like pushed me towards sort of like more alternative music and you know I so I remember like you know being around the age of like 13 and just really loving Nirvana, Bush like a lot of like the like early 90s grunge stuff like that was like definitely my um feeder into sort of like more alternative music um so 
had someone kind of like introduced you to that stuff or was it just kind of stuff you'd heard and you kind of had a, a draw towards it? How did you kind of come about it? You know, it, I didn't have like a cool older brother or anyone to be like, listen to this Fugazi record. It was, it was just sort of, yeah, yeah. it was, you know, honestly, like back then MTV still played music and there was, you know, yeah, yeah. this late night show, 120 minutes that like would focus on alternative music. I mean, that's the first time I heard at the drive-in um, years later. Um, but they would play like Nirvana videos. And like, I knew of Nirvana cause I was like maybe 10 or so uh when Kurt Cobain died um but I remember like mm. seeing them on MTV in the background um so they're always sort of there and and again like 96 97 you know that was when I think like Melancholy had just come out by Smashing Pumpkins yeah and um you know Razorblade Suitcase by Bush which is I love that fucking record I don't care what people uh think about it um like that came out and you know those were pretty mainstream like you know they were they're regularly played on the radio and things like that um and so they were pretty accessible and it was sort of just like learning about those bands that you know would would sort of push me to sort of discover other music like it um yeah especially because as you know the internet was starting to become a bit become a thing yeah and so like from there like i guess kind of moving on to stuff that's a bit more kind of aligned to what you're playing nowadays and maybe sort of grew up on like was it just that case of once you'd kind of i guess dipped your toes in with bands like nirvana and bush like that like that you wanted to kind of find stuff that was a bit heavier a bit more kind of abrasive or was it kind of just a natural progression that you kind of took that line. You know, I, th I think it certainly was more of a natural progression. I think from like Nirvana and sort of those alternative bands, like I discovered punk. And I think I sort of yeah. discovered punk inherently more as a sort of a concept that I liked. Um, and sort of vaguely it was like, oh, the Ramones, um, the Sex Pistols. And, you know, I have like really vivid memories of sort of surfing like the early days of the internet and like learning about bands and downloading songs off Napster. Um, yeah. You know, like, you know, I would like learn about Jawbreaker and I would spend an hour downloading like one Jawbreaker song. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think from there I got really into like no effects and like the fat wreck style stuff and like pop punk, um, like around sort of like 98. Um, like my first the first like punk show i went to was i think good riddance and the ataris and no use for a name oh wow um you know back when i, I can drive um yeah you know and i you know i i had a little scoffies when i was like 14 15. um and you know that sort of brings you sort of right up to like the big um breakthrough of sort of quote-unquote emo music like the get up kids yeah and things like that and like that was really sort of my like big scene um in high school um you know again you know i saw the video for uh something for um that one song off something to write home about by the get up kids on 120 yeah. minutes and i was like i love this and yeah you know, i stumbled upon the website forfa about the history of emo and like from there, I like learned about like Rites of Spring and Embrace and all the early Discord stuff. And, you know, I went and bought a Fugazi record from like the local record store when I was, you know, again, like 15, couldn't drive. I didn't own a record player. 
uh, that I was like, that I was like, <laughs> I know about this band. They seem really important. Um, and I'm just going to buy this record and I'll get a record player later. And, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah. So like in that aspect, cause I think like for me personally, I didn't really kind of like, I'd seen the name Fugazi like around and stuff like that, but I'd never kind of really kind of dug into their sort of back catalog until I was sort of maybe 18, 19 sort of thing. So like, what kind of like drew you, like why, why did you kind of like know that they were an important band and sort of like, how did that kind of all come about? I mean, I think it was just sort of the, it was sort of the lineage of Fugazi and also like, you know, I can't really understate like, you know, like, that website Forfa like was like mind blowing for me when I was like yeah fifteen like and I think that really sort of shortcutted me to a lot of like these like older bands um, you know like I listened to Lifetime before Saves the Day um, even though like Saves yeah. the Day was like at their height of their popularity when I was like getting into this stuff um, and you know it was those websites talked about how important those bands were and I was like okay like well they're really important so I really sort of like listen to them um and you know in hindsight I'm really glad um I had that sort of early exposure of those bands because you know they were sort of groundbreaking even even compared to bands now um and I think mm. it was is very important sort of like my like musical development like as like a quote-unquote artist or whatever um but also you know th there was sort of a politics with Fugazi especially um that like yeah. really helped cement like what like punk meant to me because like from an early age i was like punk is political i was like you can't be punk and not be political like my the first show i ever booked when i was 15 like was a food not bombs benefit because i was like yeah it's you book a show it's got to be a benefit for something um yeah yeah and you know so so you know i very grateful for that sort of early exposure to stuff like that because otherwise like i wouldn't have found it and i, I probably would have been in like you know, my early 20s, sort of, like, going backwards, um, like, listening to, yeah. sort of like, these more, like, adult bands, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and th th that's kind of, like, as I say, that was kind of the situation I was in, like, as I say, kind of finding bands like Fugazi and Rise of Spring and stuff like that when I was older, because I was getting into bands that were kind of coming off their influence sort of thing. So it's, yeah, it's cool that you kind of had that grounding but like when you picked up that Fugazi record like did you know what they sounded like or was it just because you saw the name and you were like I know that this is a band I need to be checking out kind of thing yeah I had no idea what they sounded like um it, <laughs> it was it was steady diet and nothing um and I just had like had hadn't the slightest idea um uh, but I knew I was like this is an important band um like this is like a band like everyone says like you should listen to um, and so I was like, well, you know, start at the beginning, like when I got into like punk, I was like, oh, the first band I'll, I'll listen to is like the Sex Pistols, um, and things like that. Cause they're sort of near the beginning. Um, so I was like, well, I really like quote unquote emo music and in some weird way, like supposedly like the get up kids derived from Fugazi, which isn't the case, but at least that's like <laughs> what it felt like in my sort of like sort of unlearned brain um so yeah, I was like, yeah yeah this is an important record um i should get it but you know probably was like six months later when i was able to like save up to buy a record player to actually listen to <laughs> yeah. it and you know it was it was abrasive it was good but 
you know, it wasn't sort of like the perfectly melodic stuff I had sort of been listening to. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, whether, whether it was because I like inherently truly liked it or I wanted to sort of like acknowledge its place as an important band, I was like, yeah, this is good. Um, and like got, I think, can't remember what the next one was, but like I remember I went to like the record store and like bought whatever other Fugazi record they had there. Yeah. So then in terms of your own kind of like musical exploration in terms of you playing, like obviously we know you as the guitarist of, of bands and stuff now, but was guitar always the instrument that you, you were drawn to or did you kind of dabble with anything else before kind of landing there? Where, where did that all kind of come I from? I mean, guitar was the first instrument I learned to play. I mean, I have, I have no rhythm. I couldn't play drums to save my life. <laughs> um, but I remember, you know, my dad was friends with a guy who like, worked at a pawn shop or something um and we were in there um and there was just like some cheap guitar that um you know like he with like a 10 watt amp that he got me for like 10 bucks um or 20 bucks or something like that um and uh we came home and i and i was like 14 i immediately called a kid in my school who i knew played guitar i was like how do i play smells like teen spirit um, and like, so that was the first song I ever learned before. Um, and I mean, that was really the only instrument I sort of stuck with. Um, you know, I didn't take lessons or anything like that. I just basically just, you know, would look up guitar tabs online, um, mm. and just sort of fuck around with stuff. Um, you know, the first band I was in was, was a, like a ska punk band, kind of like slapstick. Um, I played bass, right. um, I was in it for like, couple months uh, I was in like night can drive the shows or anything like that uh, but sort of after that you know I think most of the high school I played in sort of like a an emo core like a metal core sort of melodic hardcore band um, and that sort of like through that process really sort of like taught me a lot about like songwriting and and, mm. and just sort of being in a band yeah but was it, were you kind of always drawn to like wanting to play the guitar or was it like just, I guess, happenstance that you were in that pawn shop and you kind of saw it and you were like, oh, I like guitar music, I'll give it a go. Like, was it kind of that approach or was it something that you'd always wanted to sort of try your hand at? Yeah, I mean, I think I'd, I'd always sort of had it in me to like, like I, I just want to play guitar. Like I really like music. Um, I certainly can't fucking sing. Um, so... Um, <laughs> You know, so it was always sort of in there, but I think it was sort of like, we walk into this pawn shop, I'm like, can I hack, you know, can I get this? Um, and, and that's yeah. what sort of started. I think it would have happened no matter what, um, but it was just by happenstance that it happened then. Yeah. And the other thing I always like to sort of ask, especially when we're kind of talking about those early years, is kind of the the scene that you sort of grew up in. And as you say, kind of, you didn't particularly have like an older brother or anything that was putting you onto things, but you kind of knew people that were kind of into music, but cause obviously you're in Denver now, but whereabouts did you grow up? Well, I grew up in North Carolina in a, in a, in the right. sort of capital town of Raleigh, North Carolina. And, you know, Raleigh is, is a very small town, um, comparatively, um, you know, it's right next to Chapel Hill. So like had like, you know, a huge, but like indie rock history, like super chunk, and like a lot of a lot of sort of those bands merge records, um, but you know when I was in high school couldn't really drive, um, at least until my junior year, 
um, you know, sort of stuck to Raleigh. And, you know, that is very much a scene that, you know, if you want a scene to happen, you have to do it yourself. So yeah. I think, honestly, like the, the third local show I went to was the show I booked. You know, I was in like, ten, I was right. in 10th grade. Um, so I was like 15 or 16. Um, and I booked uh, a Funa Bombs benefit with just like whatever local bands I knew, like mostly pop punk mm. bands and things like that. Um, and that was really my introduction to the scene. You know, so shortly after I started playing music, so, you know, I would just sort of book um, like local shows to put my band on. Um, so that sort of like helped sort of develop that scene. But around the same time, you know, like I started becoming friends with kids that were like in their freshman year of college because in Raleigh, there's a there's a college, like the state school is there. Um, and, and it was yeah. through them that sort of sort of got me into a lot more like DIY or smaller music um, there. There's also like this uh, radio show at the college um, uh, called Shut the Punk Up. Um, <laughs> nice. And I, I would listen to it and it would play like a lot of like, emo stuff, but, you know, a lot of, like, epitaph things, like, pretty sort of so-and-so punk, um, like, mainstream punk, but, like, it, you know, this was before, really, the internet was super useful, like, you couldn't really hmm. stream music or have access like you do now, um, so it was really through, like, a scene of our own making um, that we were all able yeah. to get together, and, you know, of course, like, bigger shows would come through, like, Chapel Hill the t next door, or, like, as I was getting into hardcore, I would either drive up to like Richmond, Virginia, which was two and a half hours north, or Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, which was, you know, about three hours away to see some like the bigger like metalcore bands. Cause like around that time, like late high school, I was really getting into like Poison the Well, Hope's Fall, mm. uh, like Shy Halud, and like that sort of style of hardcore. Yeah. So then in terms of kind of like, you sort of booking shows and stuff because I think like, it was something I wanted to talk to you about anyway but because I used to do it when I was oh god how old was I late teens early 20s I did it for a couple of years with an ex-partner and, and stuff like that but for you being so young and, and putting on shows like how did you kind of know like what to do like and how to go about the process of booking shows and kind of was it just trial and error or did someone kind of give you a helping hand? Like, no, it, and where, where was your mentality of like wanting to do it as well? It, I mean, it was, well, you know, like wanting to do it was easy is because it wasn't happening. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you know, cause like I said, like Raleigh is very much a town where like, if you want something to happen, like you've got to do it yourself. Um, so, and, and also it was a little bit, I was like, I was really young. So, you know, it was, it was hard to sort of sneak away for the night to go to some like college kids basement, um, to go to a show, yeah. um, downtown. Um, the process of doing it was entirely trial, trial and error. I mean, I, the first few shows I did, um, were at an ice skating rink. Um, oh, wow. yeah, um, like the first show I did there was actually like, they put out mats on the ice. So obviously you weren't slipping and the band played there. Um, which is a, a terrible, a terrible sort of like setup now. Um, but was like kind of weird. And then <laughs> yeah. it moved into like the recreation room. Um, and then there were some small venues in, in Raleigh that were like pretty cheap. Like the venue I booked a handful of shows at where it was like 150 bucks just to, to rent mm. out the venue, um, to book a show there. Um, and you know, pretty cheap. 
And, and the good thing about Raleigh is, is there's not much going on. So when something is going on, like people from like all sort of scene, all sorts of scenes will show up. Um, Cause I think they yeah. all recognize that like, even though I don't particularly care about, you know, so-and-so band or the style, like I want shit to be going on. Yeah, yeah. It's that want for live music, no matter what it is kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And as I got older, like, especially entering college, um, I think for about like three or four years, like I just predominantly booked house shows. I mean, mostly in my friends' homes, uh, like very rarely, very rarely <laughs> booked them in my own home. Um, but, you know, I think that was sort of like the height of me booking shows um, mm. was that sort of that, like three or four year period where, you know, we would just book shows you know, the summers, it'd be like three shows in a row, things like that. You know, it really sort of made Raleigh, at least for that time period, like a place to stop on the map. And, you know, we would yeah. we would have some like pretty large bands play some pretty small spots. Like, you know, Baroness played um, oh, you know, wow. in my friend's living room with Kylesa, um, you know, That's back sick. in like 2006. Um, and it was just, it was just a lot of fun. It was, it was very much like living sort of that sort of, the sort of DIY salad days. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I was going to ask, like, were there kind of any particular highlights that you can remember from those days? But I guess, like, having the likes of Baroness and Kylesa coming through is, is something that was probably quite high on that list. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, Circle Takes a Square came through and played, like, on New Year's Eve. I mean, that was, I mean, around that time, I was, I was, like, fully into, like, the Screamo revival, like, all the level playing stuff. Yeah. Hot Cross came and played our basement. Um, and things like that. Um, so it was, it was just really a, a cool time. And, it, you know, it was very stressful because, you know, we were idiots. We didn't, we didn't own a PA. So every show was like scrambling to be like, fuck, where do we find a PA for this show? Um, and, you know, of course, like, you know, if the cops rolled up to one show at a house, you've just killed the next like month of shows that you have booked there. Um, yeah, yeah. Unless there's another space. Um, so you know, that, that was sort of the scene in Raleigh where, um, you know, it sort of lived and died on how long it took for the cops to come and bust up a show. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So then in terms of you actually playing, like you mentioned the first bands you were in was kind of like a, a ska punk band that you were in for a couple of months. Yeah. But in terms of, I guess, quote unquote, proper bands, like what's the first band that you consider like your first proper band so i wasn't like i mentioned earlier i was in like this like emo melodic hardcore metalcore whatever band in high school um it's called this hero dies um you know you know we i think we all really loved bands like hope's fall and even beloved even though none of us were christian like we're not religious um you know things like that like that was sort of a big part of the scene back then Mm. um that sort of you know sort of melodic hardcore so that was sort of the first band I was in and we were in we did that for like three years it was most of high school and, and okay. like my freshman year of college and you know from that band like we got to do like a, a small sort of regional tour and you know we put out we self-released like uh, and two EPs or a demo and an EP we bought a van like I was 17 years old and I spent six hundred dollars buying a van um yeah. did not know how to buy a car um, I, I don't <laughs> think we even transferred the title properly. Uh, and of course the first time, first out of town show we played, the van broke down and we got it, we of got it towed to the venue. Um, 
And so like that was like the the first main band I ever played in that really did anything. And then after that, like there was honestly like probably like a decade of just like no real bands. Like every every couple months, you know, try to start something. Um, and then it would just sort of peter out. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in college moving around a lot. Like I moved out of the country for like seven months. And then I think I lived in, I think from my first year of college, my second year of college until I graduated, I think I lived in a different place every six months. Um, oh, wow. So I traveled a lot. So, you know, like music like really fell off as a priority for me for about a decade. Yeah. So in terms of that band, like something I always kind of find interesting with with musicians and people that are kind of doing bands, like is their kind of first tour experience and you should say kind of having that opportunity to kind of do a couple of sort of out of town shows with that with this band. Like, did you have any kind of like, as you say, like that first out of town show, like van breaks yeah. down is very kind of it's, it sounds like a cliche story, but it is something that happens quite a lot sort of thing but did you have any kind of like preconceived ideas of what you thought tour would be did it kind of live up to your expectations was it completely different from what you thought like how was that first experience on the road I mean I think that first was like literally a weekend but you know for me I, you know I was still in high school um like it was was like amazing um you know van yeah. broke down we got towed van started miraculously again um, and, you know, we, we got to sort of like, it didn't matter how good or bad the show was. Um, like, it was the fact that like, we got to like, go out of town. Uh, yeah, that yeah. was really cool. Um, and honestly, it still is really cool. Um, you know, as, I, as I'm older, I'm like really sort of split on going on tour i mean i think the first fom tour i was like i don't really want to go on this like i'm i'm like <laughs> i'm in my 30s like i should probably just like teach like a 20 year old the songs and ha let him go have like the time of his life um because like yeah, i'm in yeah. my 30s i shouldn't be going you know to play shows to like 10 people in arizona uh, but you know that being said like there's still like kind of an inherent sort of like magic to it um that like still yeah. still somewhat remains like from you know going out of town I mean, the main difference is now is that like we all get up at a decent hour and we can afford to to go eat out at like the vegan spot in town instead of like stealing food <laughs> yeah. from the grocery store so you mentioned obviously like being sort of like traveling around and sort of not living in the same place for prolonged period of time so was that just the case of you wanting to see more of the world or what was the kind of reasoning behind sort of like jumping around I mean it's kind of you know I went to college in the town I grew up in so I think it's sort of it's probably natural to want to get out of the town that you spent your entire life in um and, and a lot yeah. of this was like through school so like I I moved to Barcelona for like six or seven months uh, when I was like 20 um like the study there yeah um and I got to travel around Europe beforehand and got to meet like, a lot of people. I still like, when we went on tour in Europe last summer, like I saw so many people that I met um, like uh, 13 years before, um, just sort of like traveling around Europe on like a bogus Euro, Euro rail pass. Um, right. And, um, you know, I came back from Spain and immediately did like a student exchange thing in Providence, Rhode Island. 
um, hmm. and then like stopped in DC and lived there for like a couple months um, before coming back to Raleigh um, and then to Chapel Hill. And, you know, it was just, it was, a, it was, I think, aggressive wanderlust tied down by the fact right. that like, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was still in college. And I wanted to finish, finish that. And, you know, was still, I'm still, you know, a pretty type A person. Um, hmm. So, um, you know, I was sort of grounded by the fact that like I had a goal um but at the same time any chance i could get i was i was gone um yeah that's yeah. fair enough and then before we kind of get into to the farm stuff and thieves guild and things like that the other thing that i wanted to talk to you about is um being straight edge and i think it's something that i always when i get the opportunity to speak to someone that is straight edge like myself i always kind of want to find out their sort of journey to it like how they kind of discovered it and so on and so forth like i think because i think if you look at it on paper it's a very broad thing but everyone who claims has a different approach and story to it so what was your exposure to it and why did you kind of decide to follow that kind of lifestyle i mean you know so i first was exposed to straight edge just by learning about punk on the internet yeah Um, because you know again you know i didn't have like a cool punk friend in school i didn't have like you know a sister or brother that was in the punk. So a lot of it was just me sitting in the suburbs um, on like 56K kilobytes per whatever um, internet, just like searching for punk and there's like whatever website. Mm-hmm. And I sort of learned about strategy as a concept. Um, and then like, you know, it was like, okay, whatever, this, I'm, I'm 14. This doesn't really mean that much to me. Um, and as I sort of got more involved in the scene, um, I hated straight edge. Like I hated straight edge kids. Um, I was like, I've never like this is so dumb. They're all wearing shirts that say straight edge. <laughs> They're all sort of jocks. Um, you know, like it's it's a stupid. Um, you know, because I I didn't wasn't like that. Um, yeah. And yeah. you know, but at the same time, like I grew up in a family where like my dad's an alcoholic. Um, and right. like. You know, I've seen that sort of just like ruin not just his life, but like affect other people's lives. So I always had this aversion to drinking um, and being fucked up. Uh, but I never initially sort of drew that link to straight edge. I was just like, I don't drink. I don't need right. to be straight edge. Um, but then I started uh, meeting other people that were like me, that weren't like jock dudes um, who were really into straight edge. Um, I met like other people like me um, that were also straight edge. I'm like, oh, like straight edge is not this sort of one dimensional thing. Um, And it Mm. sort of like helps me sort of own up to it um, and sort of really embrace it and sort of not let straight edge be defined by other people, but sort of like define straight edge, what it means to me. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, to me, it was more so of a rejection of sort of like this predominant sort of culture centered around getting fucked up and like that didn't speak to me ever it was you know it was always like the cool kids in school that were like spending their weekends partying which you know I worked a job if I wasn't going to a show um every weekend night I worked as like a a line cook in some shitty restaurant um and so you know it was more of a rejection of that and sort of embracing like sort of who I was and as I got older uh, I was able to sort of more so politicize it um yeah I allowed it to sort of help me become sort of a little bit more radicalized 
uh, by just sort of like mm. trying to sort of analyze and deconstruct sort of like how sort of the culture of getting wasted um, sort of has these sort of like adverse um, effects on sort of people um, and sort of broader political implications. Um, yeah. But um, so it's it pretty liberating just to sort of understand that straight edge is not just sort of one dimensional thing. Yeah, I think like, cause that's like, like myself, I think when I kind of discovered it, it was very much like, because it was the musical community that I was kind of drawn to and things like that. But as I've got older and kind of like, I've, I've been straight for what nearly 14 years now. And it's like, it's just kind of part of who I am. Like it's not necessarily so associated with the music side of things as it used to be. Whereas like now it's kind of like I have my community of straight edge friends and we're all very like-minded and we all have like similar political beliefs and, and things like that. And it's more kind of that approach to it rather than it just being, as you say, like the jock kind of stereotype of what it might have been when I was younger kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I had an interesting conversation with a friend, a friend of mine who's a writer who uh, was asking me, you know, it's like, what, um, like, do you think that, you know, this current, like the current milieu of milieu, however the fuck you pronounce it, um, of, <laughs> of straight edge bands, like, are they like inherently like more political um, than sort of like their counterparts in the punk and hardcore world? And I sort of challenged him on that. Cause I'm just like, I actually don't think, you know, to the extent that there are straight edge bands that are political right now, um, you know, I don't think that that is the dominant aspect of straight edge. I still think there's this like shitty bro-y aspect of straight edge that has always been in the forefront. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I actually think that sort of like regular society is sort of becoming more politicized where you've got like 17 year old kids on TikTok that are probably more radical than I was at 23. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was interesting because, you know, he really wanted to know like how, you know, how straight edge politicized me or is there something inherently political about straight edge and i was just like well i don't think there is something inherently political about straight edge i think it can be an avenue to become more politicized sort of based on sort of where mm. that takes you you know you know if if you're straight edge and you only listen to like shitty straight edge bands that don't talk about politics then like that's not going to be a politicizing lifestyle for you but if you're straight edge and you listen to a bunch of trial in seven gen and you know, you read the inside front article about being straight edge, then you're, you're inherently going to let sort of your association with straight edge sort of take you towards that politicized view of it. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think that was super important to me. Um, you know, when I was like in my early twenties, um, sort of cement who I was and to sort of cement my own politics and how it aligned with sort of how I wanted to live. Yeah. And I think like, as you say, kind of there still being that inherent kind of like bro mentality, like I don't want to kind of shine the limelight away from you, but your, your bandmate cat, obviously when the eco strike record came out, pinpointed out that there was the use of brotherhood numerous times throughout the record. And it's sort of like, why use those words? Why use that connotation? And it's just like, I mean, that's just a small example. And it's one that obviously just came to mind. But as you say, it's, it's that kind of 
taking the idea and growing yourself rather than like being narrow-minded about it i guess yeah i mean i mean fuck it's 2020 <laughs> come on <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but you know like and that's the thing is like straight edge has i mean it's predominantly like broly but there's always been like this like really strong undercurrent of like sort of of straight edge people that aren't um you know yeah. i remember again like like the, I think it's still a website, but like X Sisterhood X was like a huge thing. Like when I got into Straight Edge, I was like, that's really cool. Um, and, and things like that. So, you know, that's part of like the aspects of sort of like deconstructing Straight Edge, which is, you know, like if you allow it to be bro it's going to be sort of very exclusionary. And at, at this point in my life, I don't care if people are Straight Edge or not. Like I truly don't. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I certainly understand why, why people don't want to be associated with it. And they have very good reason to, um, but, you know, I, I do think the, the more political, the more out loud, the other aspects of strategy can be, the more welcoming it, it can be to people that have originally felt excluded by it. Because I, I do think being strategic is a powerful identity um, towards someone's mm. own growth, um, and it can be sort of helpful, um, to them. I don't think it's the exclusive sort of powerful identity or exclusive way for someone to sort of like help, help themselves or sort of like find value in it. Um, but I do think it, it's valuable, which is why I still am straight edge. Um, yeah. and I just think it's sort of shitty that, you know, there are those that want to sort of exclude, um, people, you know, if you look at that sort of Instagram page, like straight edge interviews, that's a perfect example. Um, you know, you have people of all sort of backgrounds um, and involvement with Straight Edge, like posting about, you know, being interviewed about their role in Straight Edge, how long they've been Straight Edge, things like that. Like I've submitted an interview, tons of my friends have. Yeah. But one thing you'll find interesting is if there's a, a woman, um, you know, a sort of someone that's not a cis dude who posts, and they don't sort of have this lengthy experience with straight edge. Um, or maybe they don't even listen to like a lot of straight edge music. They're just like, I like this as a concept. That person will get dogpiled by a bunch of shitty yeah, dudes. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's just such fucking bullshit gatekeeping. And like, you know, it's one of those things that like makes one not want to be a part of it. Um, yeah. No, I get what you mean, because like that, again, going back to that kind of Instagram page, I remember seeing one, I think there was a a woman, I think she was like from Brazil or something like that. And she'd only literally like a few months prior or something had discovered what straight edge was and obviously had fallen in love with like what the the ideology of it was and had submitted an interview. And as you say, people are like, oh, you can't do this because you've only been into it for like four months. It's like that's a fucking shitty mentality to have. Like it's I, the way I approach it is like, it's something that I like have for myself is shouldn't be for anyone else. And I think that's the approach that everyone should take kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, fuck, I, I defend pe drug dealers and, and people that are addicted to substances <laughs> for a fucking living. Um, so like, you know, like certainly like I can see the impacts of it, but I also sort of like, it's not the end all and be all of how people should live their lives. But if someone yeah. wants to like, I don't give a shit 
if someone wants to be Shredditch and doesn't listen to Youth of Today. Youth of Today is not a fucking good band. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> um, but, like, I just don't care. Um, but, you know, like, it's, like, people are just so eager to jump on someone that, that wants to explore something that should be positive and powerful just because, like, they're different. And, like, frankly, it's got, like, really big incel energy to it. Um, like the way these dudes just <laughs> like dogpile on like someone that's not like them, um, and they just want to sort of like try to like assert some sort of like dominance. It's 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 embarrassing, and and and, and no, that's fair. It enough. makes one not want to associate with it. Yeah, no, that's fair. Well, we'll get back on track with with music stuff. Um, we'll go and obviously talk about farm. I don't want to kind of dwell on the whole how did you become a band? Because people can search that on the internet if they want. But the thing that kind of drew me like to, to you guys, obviously like I've discovered you uh, before, like in the lead up to the announcement of um, the Euro tour last year, because like you got announced for fluff. So I was like, I'll check you guys out and just instantly kind of fell in love. But like, I think there seemed to be like an immediate impact with what you guys were doing. So was that kind of a surprise that like as soon as you kind of put out that seven inch and stuff that people were already kind of paying attention to you or had you kind of had an image of what you wanted the band to be that you pushed it so hard that that immediacy was there? I mean, I think I, I think it's safely speak for all of us that we always even still assume that people don't like our band. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it, it was always unexpected. Um, like even like through putting out the full length, I remember we spoke with Bert who runs Safe Inside our label and, you know, he was talking about how we thought the record would do when Freer's got announced and we're just like, I don't know, like, let's not be too optimistic and, and, you know, it, it still sort of blows our mind, um, like even, even to this day, but I think we have never really thought as a band more than one step ahead, you know, cause, cause the yeah. story was like, well, we just want to play music. Like, okay, I guess we'll play a show. Like we should record a demo. Um, you know, we never really thought like this would be a band that would go on tour or, or really do anything aside from play like a local show every couple of weeks. Um, and you know, I think honestly, like for a very long time, people didn't care about us. And I honestly feel like people don't, which is fine. Um, Cause like we never expect it. Um, and um, you know, so, so putting out the seven inch, like it was a, it was a, it was just cool to put out a record and it was cool to hit yeah. the milestone where the label, our friend Adam, um, who played drums with us uh, on Europe. Um, like it was cool to be like, oh, cool. You broke even. That's really great. Um, you know, yeah. those are sort of our, our goals. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like we're all pretty pessimistic and humble, um, I guess <laughs> is the right word, but, um, you know, when someone's like, I really like your band, I think our common thing is like, but why, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, you know, like we're, we're very bad at taking compliments, I suppose. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like going to, like going to Europe was, was like, it was, it was such a great reception. Um, and, hmm. you know, cause when we started this band, like we, we all knew we 
were political bands. Um, especially yeah. at the time, like, there just weren't many, like, political bands. It was sort of, like, at least in Colorado, sort of like a kind of a revival of just, like, kind of just, like, crossover, hardcore, that sort of reminded me of, like, the early aughts, like, fashion corp shit. Um, yeah, yeah. Which, like, kind of, like, lacked substance. Um, and no one was talking about anything. Um, so, like, you know, we'll be the sort of PC fascists that speak in between <laughs> sets or in between songs. Um, and, it, and it was cool going to Europe because, like, that was sort of the default. At least it felt like to us, at least compared to America. Mm. Yeah. And then in terms of kind of, like, you mentioned, obviously, you wanting to be like a political band and again i don't want to kind of rehash things that you've kind of said and stuff that i spoke to cat about as well but like just in terms of your kind of political like upbringing so to say like you mentioned earlier like from an early age you always kind of associated that punk is political and things like that so have you always kind of had that kind of uh sort of like political scale like within your own inner sort of like workings kind of thing or have you kind of just educated yourself more and more that you're in a stance now that you feel confident to speak about politics openly yeah i mean i think i've always always been for better or for worse like really outspokenly political um you know starting from high school i was like yeah punk is political um mm. like that's just where it, where it is and you know i think getting further radicalized with the second iraq war um uh, which was my last year of high school i was like 18 you know like i organized a walkout of my high school um oh, wow. there were 12 of us <laughs> um, <laughs> and i just went home um but um you know as, as i got into college i got more into sort of like radical politics like anarchism um, and sort of started plugging into sort of local activist things, you know, like Food Not Bombs um, was run out of like my kitchen for a couple of months when I lived really oh, wow. close to the college. And then, you know, a group of sort of like activist minded sort of people in my town um, had been working on a bicycle co-op. Um, it was called 1304 Bikes based off the address of the house that it started out of. Um, and it was basically like you come, um, you volunteer time, you get a bike. And we had all these donated bikes, bike parts, things like that. Um, and that ultimately got moved to a different space um, that some of us started. Um, it was called Acre, which stood for Action for Community in Raleigh. And it was supposed to be like, a, we lived upstairs, but in the basement housed the bike co-op, um, had office spaces for various activist groups, had the Food Not Bombs kitchen. Um, I, I would do shows in the basement and like had like a little info shop slash distro that I would take to shows where I would just like order books from like AK Press and Crime Think um, and things like that. Um, and, and that sort of was really my introduction to sort of more sort of radical politics. Um, and then, and then, you know, I got really into sort of animal rights activism, like sort of right after, mm. uh, like right as the, the Shack Seven were getting sort of prosecuted um, was when I was sort of really getting into animal rights activism. Um, and sort of once they all went to prison, one of them was actually housed in a prison that was 
like an hour or so from my town. Um, and, you know, so we just started doing a lot of benefit shows for them for different activist causes. And then that sort of turned into us sort of like running our own sort of animal rights campaigns, doing home demos and things like that, um, which led to varying bits of trouble here and there. But, um, you know, so so for for a really long time, like politics, activism was was my identity. Um, yeah. And, you know, then, then I then I went to law school, um, which you know, the reason I went was because, you know, I spent all this time doing benefit shows to get people lawyers. And I was like, fuck it, I'll just become a lawyer. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think, I think that's sort of been the way forward in which like, I've at least wanted to sort of like help, help out um, from there. Yeah. So, and then in back in terms of like, with things with farm, as you say, like, coming from a sort of a Colorado Denver scene that maybe wasn't sort of speaking openly about politics and stuff. And I think like, if you take hardcore as a general, like people always kind of want and hope that hardcore will be somewhere that there will be political thinking and people will have that, those conversations and so on and so forth. That's not always the case, but that's what we strive for, I guess. Whereas, like, I guess you guys kind of, like, have that approach of, like, putting sort of words, like, words where you mean it sort of thing. So, like, when you were kind of first starting out and kind of doing shows, like, I think now it's, obviously now we're not having shows at the moment, but, I mean, more in general, like, people are a bit more sort of politically minded. But when you first started out, like, were people kind of receptive to that or did people not give a shit like uh, where where were you kind of at with that i think the people that were receptive to it were really receptive and the people that didn't give a shit really mm. didn't give a shit you know we we never <laughs> yeah. had like pushback where people were like heckling in between songs like i came here for yeah. music and not a fucking speech so i so i do think you know people would come up and and talk to you know cat um or or myself uh, you know like about things that we've said um you know especially in europe i mean again like you know like we had people come up and even challenge us on stuff which is like a really Mm. great um great sort of like aspect it wasn't just like i agree what you said it was like i agree with this but this part like let's talk about it um so you know i do think like people did really you know people that were sort of attuned to it really did appreciate it um, especially when we would play like more traditional hardcore shows, you know, cause we all, you yeah. know, always sort of felt like sometimes we were like the hardcore band on a punk show. Um, yeah. and sometimes I felt like we were like the punk band on a hardcore show and for the latter sort of category, um, you know, there would always be like a few kids in the crowd that, you know, would be like, I'm really glad you said you talked about sort of this to- topic or that topic. Um, which which is great you know i i think now sort of like the the punk scene sort of in general but especially in denver has sort of like it's changed um Mm. where you know a lot more bands are sort of openly political and things like that and like i don't think that that has nothing to do with us i just think um that's just sort of where where a lot of people have sort of come on their own um but it is nice um, because when you have sort of like a, a basic level sort of understanding, I think you can sort of further the conversations or have more nuanced um, discussions 
um, about things. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say kind of like you guys being sort of the the hardcore band on a punk show or the punk band on a hardcore show. Because I think like, again, from my personal perspective, and this, this going back to you, maybe not being asked to take compliments, but I think like Farm should be a much bigger band than they are sort of thing at the moment, especially now like the full lengths out. But like, where do you kind of like feel that you fit in? Because I think like, again, kind of looking at hardcore on a more broader spectrum, I am going to be listening, like, I think we saw recently the announcement with Outbreak, like, it's still a boys club in in a big aspect of it. But I'm a big fan of those bands, like bands like Drain, like Gulch and, and things like that. Like, they're the bands that are kind of getting pushed. Whereas for, for me, like, you should be a band that's in that conversation as well. So like, I don't know, is that something that you're striving for? Is it something you don't really care about? Like, where do you kind of see yourselves fitting in? I mean, like, I don't really, I don't really care about playing big hardcore fests. Um, like, I just don't. Um, <laughs> like, um, so, you know, I think like what's more important, like, at least in my perspective is, you know, a lot of bands are a flash in the pan. Um, and mm. like very few can say they like have some big impact on like punk and hardcore and you know i think we all know like we're not going to be that band and that's certainly not what we're striving for but i think what's more important to me is like hitting a kid at the right time in their life to make an impact i certainly there were certainly small bands that like no one gave a shit about that like spoke to me like really at a time when i need when i needed it um yeah. so I, I care more about about that personal impact than i do about being like a band that will be remembered in five years um you know because i mean you know even a lot of these bands that like are are really hyped right now like very few of them are going to be able to sort of like have a lasting impact um mm. you know but yeah i mean i don't think that was ever that i don't think it's ever been our our goal i mean it's, it's certainly nice as hell not to play to five people um <laughs> yeah. you know that that's fantastic um and i don't know if it's you know there's part of a you know insecurity of of like trying to be like a big band and just being like we're not going to be um but i mean i think for all of us we're just as home playing i mean here's a great example um you know we were fortunate enough to play that one of the half heart reunions in uh Germany, yeah. which was a fantastic show it was like one of the highlights of that tour um and it was great and we're super grateful to be asked to do that um especially because you know, we're a small band that no one still really knows about. Um, and there were tons of people there and it was, it was a great night all around. But we were on some giant stage, um, like really far. Yeah. And the night before we played the basement of some bar in Strasbourg, France. And there were like 20 people in there, but it was so fucking packed. And hands down, that was one of my favorite shows of tour. Um, like being, yeah. being in a packed basement with 20 people versus um, playing one of the biggest hardcore shows of the year. 
And I think just yeah. generally that's where we all feel comfortable um, at that sort of level. And, you know, like I would, I would much rather go through the Midwest and play someone's living room, packed living room with like 30 kids than like hop from like hardcore fest to hardcore fest. Um, yeah. You know, it, it would be, it'd be nice to play fest just because, you know, like I think we can bring like sort of a, a politic that may not be as prevalent in this fest, but I don't think that's really ever been at least my goal. Um, you know, yeah. it was cool. We, we were able to play a fest in Oklahoma prom court, um, which was a benefit for um, sort of local LGBTQ um, group in the town. And it was cool to play that fest. Um, Cause I think that sort of had like a little bit more of a DIY sort of aspect to it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't think this band has ever been anything that we've been chasing sort of popularity or anything like that. Um, we're just, cause we're just not cool. <laughs> like, we're not that cool or interesting. Um, well, you mentioned obviously the half art show. Like I don't want to sort of dwell on it too much cause you kind of touched upon what I wanted to ask, but like, how was that kind of experience? I guess maybe not necessarily for, well, from a playing perspective, but also just to kind of be part of what they, those shows were. Like, what was that kind of experience like? It was surreal. I mean, you know, Half Heart is one of my favorite hardcore bands. Um, and, mm. you know, and certainly one of Cat's favorite hardcore bands. Um, so it was just sort of surreal um, to play it, um, especially because, you know, I think Half Heart was one of those hardcore bands that had substance to it. Um, yeah. You know, that really had a lot of like smart, intelligent things to say uh, in their music. Um, so I think the whole day was surreal. I mean, we were all really fucking nervous um, about it. Just because, I mean, I've never played in front of that many people. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and like I was losing my voice leading up to it. Um, and I think like there was a lot of stress around just doing well. Um, and then, you know, once we played and we didn't really horribly fuck up, like it was, it's like a, so much relief and we could just sort of just enjoy it. Um, yeah. You know, it was, it was just a real surreal day, but you know, the next, the next mm. night we ended up in Berlin playing like a basement, um, of like a restaurant, um, with, you know, this am amazing band from Brazil time and time and distance. And, you know, there were 20 people there and it was equally great experience just for different reasons yeah um yeah and it was just weird <laughs> it was weird to go from like <laughs> yeah. a, a moldy basement to like a three thousand person show back to a moldy basement um <laughs> yeah. yeah and then in terms of kind of like currently what sort of, obviously i know at the moment as you say we're not doing shows but you have just released hollow hope and i think for the people that are a fan of your band they're very much digging it and it's getting a lot of kind of sort of spins on various places it's getting a lot of attention on kind of different like media outlets and so on and so forth so like again like not saying you don't want to be that big band but like has it how's it been kind of going from the seven inch where it was maybe a handful of people like here and there kind of discovering it sort of 
incrementally whereas with this it's like a big dump and everyone's kind of like hyped for it how's that kind of difference felt unexpected i mean you know like i said when when pre-orders first went up we were all sort of like sort of holding our breath like i hope it's just not an embarrassing uh pre-order numbers um like (laughs) I think I think our goal was like I just hope Bert doesn't lose money on our band, um, and like so to sort of have the first press go out of print, just in general, much less than like two or so weeks, was sort of just like mind blowing um, and like yeah. unexpected, and even still I'm like who who was buying this, um, um, <laughs> um, but it's it's been it's been really nice, especially just because like we we like put ourselves through the ringer to get this sort of record not just done but to sort of like have it be what it is which is something that we wanted to be yeah. like different um like by by no means are we breaking any molds of hardcore um but at least personally like we've got out of our comfort zones um a little bit um and you know there are certainly conversations about like really concerned about like how are people gonna like this especially because like some people like the seven inch and like there was like an expectation um, or at least a weight compared to like writing the seven inch, which all we had was a terrible demo at the time. Um, so, mm. you know, there was, there was like a lot of stress that we would always like sort of try to like put to the back of our minds um, and sort of write something that was sort of meaningful to us. Um, yeah. But it's still, it's still weird. I'm like really happy uh, that it like people like it. Um, I just, I sort of thought it would sort of be released to, you know, some indifference. Um, Yeah. (laughs) uh, Because I think that's sort of the mindset we're in. It's like incapable of being too optimistic. Um, But no, like I'm so glad that people seem to be really into it. And, you know, because we worked really hard on it. I'm just really upset that it's going to be like another year before we could play um any of these songs so yeah. we haven't played half the songs on the record live um like yeah, we've never, yeah like we've never played them live um you know i think there are only two songs on the record that we played on the european tour um and then i think when we got back from europe we may have only played like five or six shows i think in those shows we added in like two or three new songs um so like at least half the record like we've never played in front of other people um yeah until our live stream on saturday which will be the first time we'll play most of these songs live yeah and just in terms of kind of like you saying kind of pushing yourselves sort of like musically and this this record kind of being a bit more of like of a personal touch like i don't mean this in in any sort of disparaging way whatsoever but like i think like with the seven inch there was a bit more of a a kind of quote-unquote sort of traditional hardcore sound in there, like in terms of like there were kind of gang vocal bits, there were bits that you could sort of kind of two-step to and things like that. And not saying those things don't exist in Hollow Hope, but there seems to be a more of a direction with Hollow Hope. So it, am I reading too much into that or was there a conscious effort of like, okay, we're still a hardcore band, but we don't want to necessarily have stereotypical hardcore tropes on this record no i mean like that's exactly right i mean like i think i was really in my own head about writing songs um because i was learning sort of develop patterns where it'd be like 
fast DVD part into like a two-step part, which, you know, one, there's like four of the songs on the seven inch follow that sort of same pattern. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I think a lot of us were sort of getting a little, wanted to do a little bit more than that. Um, so like writing the record, we'd, we'd sort of find these moments where we either consciously be like, let's do go in the opposite direction of what like a traditional hardcore song would do. But there would also be these moments where we're like, no, fuck it. Let's lean into it and sort of try to honor it. You know, I think that this, yeah. the second song on the record, Rain City, is like a perfect example where it sort of like has a sort of building up breakdown thing and it sort of goes into sort of like a, a halftime sort of moshier part, which is like when we first wrote it, we're just like, this is so stupid. Um, <laughs> and But then we're like, but it's good. It works. It's good. I, we, yeah, we like yeah. it. Um, so, so it's just like, why would we bend ourselves over backwards to fight something that like we like um in certain spots but you know other spots were like i don't want to do that and like especially like i was consciously trying to be like well there's already a song that's sort of on the record that follows this sort of pattern so i don't want to do that um so i was trying to sort of push the outside margins on sort of what we could do as like thumb without yeah without necessarily like trying to reinvent ourselves because like very very mm. few bands can do that um well you know like you know ceremony could do it um but even then they, they got yeah. tons of shit um gouge away did it really well um yeah but like i'm not that good of a musician <laughs> so <laughs> so you know we we you know try to like I didn't want to rewrite the seven inch to be a full length. Um, yeah. Um, so we tried to, to sort of push ourselves in a way where like some of the demos of the songs, cause we recorded demos um, to send the cat cause she was out in Washington. Um, um, I think we only actually like practiced with her like three weekends, the entire writing process. So most of this was done by oh, wow. sending, sending demos to her um, or shitty iPhone recordings, but you know the demos. Like certainly, there was there was a lot of concern. Like this doesn't really sound like us. Um, and I think there was just a lot of like faith that like once we got us all together in a room and put all our parts together, um, like yeah. it would sort of cement to sort of a like people can sort of see the progression. Like I, I especially see like the first three songs in our seven inch as like a natural progression towards the the songs in the full length yeah and i don't usually ask this but it's something that i think is quite interesting with your record is is artwork and it's something that i think it's a very stereotypical journalist question but i think like your guys artwork is something that's quite striking so why did you kind of go for the idea of just the balaclava face you know I think there was uh, a couple concepts. We we stressed about what the artwork was. Um, right. Okay. And like, I there were like vague ideas of like we want to, like our aesthetic is is really simple. Um, yeah. Uh, like simple and and sort of like bold. Um, and you know, I and Cat really wanted um, sort of the artwork to have sort of like a, a political meaning to it. 
Um, but we were always super wary about getting like really in depth with it. Um, mm. So I remember, you know, back in the early 2000s, um, these anti-animal rights group put an ad in the New York Times, which was a man in a balaclava saying like, we control Wall Street. And the idea of it oh, was okay. to basically be like, you know, because these activists are demonstrating it caused Huntington Life Sciences to be delisted from the stock exchange, um, which was great. Um, and that always sort of really struck me as a really simple iconic image. Um, so we, we, we decided to go with that, you know, not realizing like, it's also not like a particularly new image, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, people have painfully made us aware there's like half a dozen records that really carry the same font, <laughs> which like, I, like, I even like tried like reverse image searching art when, when we got the art, like reverse image searching it just to make sure, but like, it's not a terribly inventive idea. But I think the twist is, um, you know, Kat really wanted like a younger person in it. Um, you know, certainly yeah. not like a dude. Um, yeah, yeah. That's like takes a boring idea and makes it more boring. Um, so, you know, fortunately, like our friend Steve, um, who plays in this band from here called Implied Risk, you know, he takes his, his kid to shows. Um, and we're just like, Steve, can we take a picture of your, your 13, 14 year old kid? Um, and for the record cover, because I thought it was a, or not, I thought it was, it, this was Kat's idea, um, was was a good contrasting aspect. If you've got this, because yeah. um, I remember when I sent Kat like the original mock-up of like the idea, it was like a really close, highly cropped image of someone um, in a balaclava. And Kat's like, it's a really tough, sort of scary image and like our band's not tough uh, which is a which is a fair <laughs> assessment um but like i thought you know cat's idea of, of putting a child in it um was sort of like a nice playful sort of contradiction and i and mm. you know, i think cat brought up a good point is you know was really like well it's gonna be like kids that age that are really gonna take on the mantle of of sort of resistance and things like that um as the rest of us get old and cynical um yeah and so i think like that was sort of the the thing behind it and you know we sort of just gave a mock-up to chris mollett um who did the design and then on the interior we we did a photo shoot with just as many people in the denver scene as we possibly could um mm. just to sort of sort of express sort of the multitude um uh, of people um in terms of sort of like what does it mean to have someone in the balaclava you know uh, at least to me, it like harkens back to sort of like 1970s sort of radicals, like, you know, the heyday of the IRA and, you know, Bader-Meinhof gang and sort of like all those things, like those left wing sort of like more militant radicalism. And it was yeah, sort of yeah. interesting just to put more people in that um, and out of it to sort of express like there's this undercurrent of radical politics that is, that is coming about in the country. Um, not in the mm. not in the country, just in the world. So I think sort of that, the yeah. idea behind the artwork was to sort of try to express that. Um, so I mean, hopefully we did. And <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do want to touch upon Thieves Guild as well, but before, I just want to kind of touch upon your personal life a little bit, like in terms of because you said kind of going to law school and becoming a lawyer and becoming a public defender. I think like that obviously 
stands very much in line with your sort of political standpoint and things like that. But like, I don't, again, don't want this to sound like I'm talking down to you in any sense or form whatsoever, but like being a dude that has long hair, has tattoos and things like that, like how do kind of people approach you when you're kind of are there defending someone and stuff like do, do people take you seriously? Like, well, I don't know. Cause I don't know how that experience works. Well, a few, like one is like now I, I do appeals, um, which means right. that I'm never in court. Um, okay. But you know, I was a trial attorney for like six years and, and you know, my hair was, this was the longest my hair has really been in a long time. Um, and so like, I would usually have a little bit more conservative, especially if I had like a jury trial. Um, but you know, tattoos are covered up by a suit. Um, and, yeah. you know, uh, it was, it's, it's never really been that much of an issue. Um, and I mean, my personality is, is sort of out there. Um, so, you <laughs> yeah. know, if a judge has an opinion on me, like the tattoo is not going to change that. They either hate me or like me. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, it, it doesn't really impact my sort of quote unquote professional life that much. Um, yeah. you know, but, but, you know, again, like if, if I were still doing trials and I had like an important trial coming up, like I would likely cut my hair, um, uh, because it's not, don't really give a shit about me. It's like more about how it's going to impact my client and you know, whether or not they go into a cage or not. And if, and if a juror is going to sort of like look at my long hair and sort of think differently about my argument, like that's something I'm not going to subject my client to. Um, But, you know, it's, it's been, you know, not that difficult to sort of balance sort of like the, the two different lives of like being, you know, an attorney and being punk. I mean, like, yeah, you know, like, Sometimes they intersect, um, you know, like, you know, I got arrested at the Trump inauguration and that was a weird intersection okay. um, of like being under uh, a grand jury indictment for a year um, and like having to schedule my court cases around me having to fly back to DC for court. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think overall it's, it's been manageable. I mean, I, I, I also yeah. think tattoos are a lot more like accepted now. Like when I, when I, when yeah. I like represented juvenile clients, I would honestly like roll my sleeves up so I could be like, I'm cool. <laughs> like, you should, like I'm not just some <laughs> other adult trying to tell you what to do. Like I'm cool. I get it. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's been fairly a lot easier than I thought it would have been to sort of, yeah. Apple. What what were you arrested for? Uh, my charges had I had twenty one charges of like writing, uh, conspiracy, um, and assault on a police officer. Basically, what happened is I was there as a legal observer for the National right. Lawyers Guild, which is uh, a, a, essentially a bar association of progressive attorneys. Um, and one of their programs is legal observing. Um, I was there as a legal observer um, at the Trump inauguration where some things got broken. And what the DC police department did is they essentially is what's called kettling where they block off each end of the street. Yeah, yeah. And they just sort of close you in and it's a mass arrest. And I ended up in that kettle. 
along with 200, right, okay. 230 other people. And, you know, we all thought, you know, this is a pretty common tactic. We all thought we were going to get misdemeanor charges and sort of be let go. Um, you know, 36 hours later, as we're being released from jail, we all found out we were charged with a variety of felonies, um, all stemming from conspiracy. Because uh, at least in the United yeah. States, you are criminally liable for the unlawful acts of your co-conspirators um, if certain conditions are met. Um, so, you know, we're all, if one person hit a cop and they were our co-conspirator, the government was essentially saying we're liable for that because a lot of people were wearing black. I mean, like I'm, I'm yeah, wearing yeah. all black right now just because <laughs> yeah. I, I lack fashion sense. But in any event, uh, it was a tremendously failed prosecution um, that involved a lot of like cheating and unethical conduct by the assistant U.S. attorney, Jen Kirkhoff, who was forever going to be a piece of shit. Um, and, um, I think only no one was convicted at trial. They went through two trials and everyone, uh, no one was convicted. I think a handful of people pled guilty, but they ended up dismissing nearly all the cases. Um, yeah. Uh, so that was a weird year of my life. Um, being like, am I going to lose my bar license um, <laughs> you know like what is that um and you know, that was especially like going on tour and and things like that and you know trying to like travel outside of the country um like you know even in yeah. europe like even after my charges had been dismissed like i was uh, nervous that like i would not be let in you know when we left the eu um like not be let in and out um yeah yeah but you know like it, it was it was just a small precursor of what trump wants to do to activists now um yeah and, you know it, it and frankly it's what the police do to people of color all the time which is they do unlawful shit the district attorney uh hides exculpatory evidence um they try to cheat and you know but those people don't have the privilege of like thousand dollar an hour pro bono attorneys like meticulously looking through it um so, you know, it, it really, you know, we're, we were a bunch of, for lack of a better term, privileged kids that had like free attorneys and things like that. But the reality is, is that in the United States, and I'm sure in many countries, like this is how the government operates. Um, they cheat. Yeah. Um, they try to put people in cages for way too long. Um, and, it, and it really like leads to like a complete misery. Um, mm. And, you know, that's, that's what... I mean, even our fucking Democratic nominee, like, is okay in short with that. I mean, like, this yeah, vice yeah. president pick is a fucking monster, was a monster of a prosecutor who has yet to de ex express any regret over the horrible fucking things that she did. I mean, like, Joe Biden, like, wrote one of the worst fucking crime bills, has been unapologetic about it. Um, I mean, this is, like, these are mass incarceration candidates. Um, and, and yeah. the fucking slap in the face to all the progressives. I'm sort of going on a tangent here. Um, no, 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 it's all, fine. All the sort of progressives that like they are desperately trying to sort of shame to support them when like at every fucking turn they snub their noses at. Um, it's it's just infuriating. <laughs> and just like one more thing that I want to kind of touch upon within sort of like your your professional yeah. career, like having sort of sort of a leftist view and sort of liberal sort of approach to life and kind of like the politics that you do have obviously 
I don't really know the ins and outs of kind of how American law works compared to stuff here. But like, so to give you a bit of an insight, like my professional job is I, well, I don't anymore, but I used to work for a local newspaper. And part of that was reporting on court cases. And obviously like you'd see like, see like sexual abuse, rapes and whatever. And I always found like it incredible how the defense lawyer could like, obviously I know it's their job, but how they kind of separate like work and the crime sort of thing. So were you ever, have you ever been in that situation where like you've had to defend someone that's maybe done something that you've thought is completely horrible and completely wrong? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, that's, that is the question that public defenders get asked. Like, how can you defend those people? Um, Cause people have a lot of like misconceptions about, you know, that people want to wish that the criminal justice system is just like all these like, in, you know, in just people being sent to prison for many years for the crack cocaine disparity. But I mean, often like, you know, it does test sort of my personal politics with my commitment to the job. Um, and, yeah. you know, I, always, I often describe it as, you know, being, a pub, being committed as a public defender requires you holding that value constant um, to the denigration of your other values. And I don't think a lot of people can do it. So I think if you can do it, it's, it's really important. And I think there are, there are a couple different ways in which I, I often sort of answer that question, which is like, one is, you know, I think in, I've yet to have a client where I thought they were defined by the worst thing that they've been accused of doing. Um, yeah. Like, you know, even my clients that have been accused of murder, like, I liked, um, you know, so, you know, I think it's worthwhile that they at least have representation um, and that they have good yeah. representation um, because the legal system is inherently and by design alienating. Um, and, you know, like, I think like they're entitled to it. I mean, like, that's like their constitutional right. Um, and like, it's my job, it's my ethical obligation because I am ethically obliged to zealously represent my clients um, to, to sort of give them that defense. But I think more, more hmm. importantly, you know, the state doesn't give back power you concede to it. So if one were to go into a case in which you really hated what your client was accused of doing and you let the state cheat um, you didn't object to some unlawful thing they're doing or, or anything like that. That's, that's power that they're going to keep, that they're going to use disproportionately against people of color, against poor people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you can't sort of like divvy, divvy that up based on like who you, who you like, um, because the ultimate impact is going to affect um, everyone. Um, and, you know, like, for example, you know, people, people often sort of say, well, we got off on a technicality, you know, the evidence was suppressed on a technicality. And I'm just like, if you think that, you know, at least keeping the police honest to at least sort of their constitutional obligations is so unimportant for like one case, then I don't really know what to fucking say to you because like, <laughs> that is yeah. at least like as imperfect as it is in which 
it's horribly imperfect. Um, like our criminal justice system, our constitutional laws, all fucked up and broken. But to the extent that it's still there and, and it provides some protections, I mean, like, you have to be vigilant against like preventing them from overstepping and, and no matter what. Um, and I think ultimately also like, I'm an abolitionist. Like I don't think you solve complex human problems by throwing someone in a fucking cage. Um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, like, historically, like that doesn't fucking work. Um, and uh, you know, like people often say like, well, you know, if, you know, if you defund the police or like you abolish prisons, what are you gonna do with all these people that are convicted of horrible crimes? What the fuck are we doing with them now? Certainly yeah, it's yeah. not working. It, it, it does very little for recidivism, preventing people from keeping crimes or committing crimes. Um, so, you know, I think like overall, I think there are really Im more important issues to me. Um, that support my sort of ethical obligation to sort of defend someone. Um, yeah. And also at the end of the, at the end of the day, like a jury, if it goes to trial, a jury ultimately decides the facts. And, yeah, you yeah. know, at a certain point, like I'm not a magician. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, like a, a good thing that you always sort of explains, like I'm a baker, not a magician. Like if I have shit ingredients, like, your cake's not going to be that great. Um, and a jury ultimately decides, and I've had countless times where I may have had an opinion on a, on a client's guilt or innocence and the jury has, has disagreed. Um, and mm. so it's like, well, who the fuck am I as one person to sort of like make that decision? You know, I have, ex yeah. I have exonerated clients um, where my first reading of the police report is, uh, this dude's fucked um yeah, yeah you know you know i've had clients that have been id'd with 100 percent certainty um of a crime and you know dna evidence exonerates them um so i i just think like the the things that we push for and protect as public defenders and again we're people we're defending people that have no one else um, like they have no, yeah. they have literally no one else, um, as their attorney, but often in these people's lives, they have no one else at all. Um, yeah. It, like no one's ever listened to them. No one's ever given them the time of fucking day. Um, no one's ever fought for them. Um, and they have to face like the, the weight of the state, um, and, you know, I don't think anyone should face the state alone. Um, yeah. Because the state can't be trusted. Um, they can't be yeah. trusted to, to do, to follow the rules that they're supposed to do. They can't be trusted with the power that they have. And, you know, certainly as public defenders, I am not going to end mass incarceration. You know, I am hmm. not in court at least when I was a trial attorney, I'm not in court every day, you know, getting evidence suppressed day in, day out. Um, you know, it's, it just doesn't happen, but at least for people's individual lives, you know, I'm making at my best um, real impacts by just sort of fighting for them and yeah. keeping the state at bay, at least for that one day. Cause if you don't 
like you're gonna like we're gonna find ourselves all of ourselves in a much worse worse position um which is a which yeah. is a reality that communities of color face day in day out where you know hmm. you know we i used to know your rights trainings in dc um to like young like kids and like poor communities of color and like how fucking dare you be like well if a cop stops you ask say am i being detained no fucking cop is gonna give a shit if like some 16 year old kid yeah, yeah. like tries to fucking like you know know your rights then um and you know so well i think we've seen we've seen that in the recent weeks and months like it's just the shit that's going on over in your country at the moment like i know it's been happening for years but obviously we're seeing it a lot more prominently but it's like they're doing nothing and they're getting fucking punished for it yeah and you know it's but you know i think ultimately like the, i i don't really blame anyone that that wants to do this job and just like finds out they can't i mean i i've i've certainly had cases where it's tested me um yeah but um you know i i do think at least you know in the society that we have in the criminal justice system we have like we're necessary and they're they're very important reasons now i think what the community does is separate from what like the state can do um and i think like the community like can have different responses um to people that are like called out for sort of like really bad behavior like you, you mm. know people are you know so and so gets called out for being an, an abuser therefore the presumption of innocence in a criminal courtroom in the punk scene of like 30 or 40 kids they don't i don't give a shit if they get that presumption of innocence um yeah uh, like when the state wants to fuck with them absolutely but i mean i think you know it's different in the communities that you populate and that you actually have control in um and you know sometimes it's hard to sort of draw those sort of the differing lines um yeah but i, but I think my general default is if the state wants to fuck with someone they got to go through us <laughs> that's fair enough well i appreciate you sort of like giving me that insight like as i say it's something that i've always kind of not like battled with but I've always found it interesting being someone that's sat in a courtroom and seen someone sort of defending people with as you say like something that you may morally think is is wrong but how they kind of have that approach so I really appreciate that Chris yeah. thank you um and as I say we'll we'll get to your other sort of musical <laughs> projects Thieves Guild so like I guess now knowing that you kind of grew up listening to that as you said earlier that kind of getting into that kind of screamo like revival yeah. like bands like circle takes a square and stuff L knowing that and now listening to that this band it kind of totally makes sense so was was that kind of where this band was born from like wanting to do something that had that more kind of screamo edge to it yeah i mean i think when when cat moved um to washington like from really like slowed down um in terms of like right. We weren't practicing every week. It would be like months, and it would be like weeks, if not months, in between practice. And like, Fong was was instead of like a constant thing, it was more like really intense moments. And I think, yeah, like I think, like we the seven inch had been out for no, the seven inch wasn't even out when Cat moved. So we're like we're good on songs. We don't need to write anything. Um, 
So, you know, but, you know, Cat Mood, which means we were being a little less active as a band. And Chris, our other guitar player, um, had written some songs which aren't fun songs. Um, you know, they, they wouldn't sound like it or anything like that. And like, we all sort of like that sort of, sort of screamo-y, sort of like crusty stuff. Um, and, you know, he's like, he asked Nick and, and me to sort of play with him on it. Um, and, you know, we did. Um, and, you know, it, it was a thing that would be like every couple of weeks, if not months. It's not something that we did like very intently, um, but it was just like a mm. thing just to sort of keep playing music more frequently than we were afforded to. Yeah. Um, and it, it was with people that like, you know, like me, Chris and Nick have been playing music together for like four years at this point. So it's like really easy just to punch in and go. Um, so I switched over to bass and, and singing. And that was the first time I'd actually like sung, um, like been a main vocalist in a band. Um, and so like we wanted to do something that was sort of like that wouldn't fit FOM, that was a little bit more like crustier, like screamo -er. Um And, you know, I think last December we, we had like five songs and we sort of just recorded it we've literally only played three shows as a band. Um, yeah. Because yeah, it was one of those things where it's like, I don't really want to play a lot um, with, yeah. with that band. Uh, mostly because like, I truly don't think I could play like three shows back to back because my voice just goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was like, it was a fun, pro it's, it's a fun project to do. Um, that's, that's different. Um, that sort of like keeps at least me engaged. Um yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a cool record to record. Yeah. And in terms of you kind of like, as you say, sort of switching to doing vocals kind of thing, like I always find it interesting for people that do vocals, like where their kind of sort of inspiration comes from or whether it's something that's forced upon them. And it seems to be in the punk and metal scene, a lot of vocalists kind of just fall upon that position kind of thing. So like when you were doing that, like, was vocals something you wanted to give a go or again, was it just the circumstances needed someone to, to take that mantle and you were the one to step up? Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, cause I, I do a little bit of vocals in farm and of course, um, yeah. I, I think like we went like a year without me even trying to do any vocals. Um, cause I just didn't really want to. Um, <laughs> and, um, so like when we got together, like I think it was just when like Thieves Guild first started, it was just sort of assumed that I would do vocals because like I don't think I don't right. think we wanted to add any more people into it. Um, so you know I was like I'll give it a give it a go, and I did for lack for better or for worse. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it was interesting um, to sort of like have the responsibility to write like you know because I, I wrote the lyrics like over like a weekend. Because uh, I kept putting, I kept mm. putting it off. Um, um, so it was, it was interesting to sort of carry that wave. It's something I don't think I, I fully uh, understood um, in thumb. Like, you know, basically just dropping like ten songs in Cat's lap and being like, yeah. write vocals for these. Like it's nothing. I was like, oh, this is <laughs> yeah. kind of hard. This is really fucking hard. Um, like, I get it. Um, I get it now in a way that I didn't. Um, but, I mean, I think it was just sort of like, yeah, like, I'll just do vocals. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it, 
and we were able to make it work. Um, yeah, yeah. To an extent. And I'm going to start sort of like winding things yeah, down because yeah. I've taken up way too much of your time. But in terms of like, obviously, I know you've got the live stream coming up on Saturday, which will have happened by the time yeah. this episode goes out. It'll still out, be but... on YouTube. <laughs> It'll still be up for Yeah, but, but in terms of like planning ahead for the future, I know everyone's kind of like thinking it's very uncertain terms at the moment, but have you guys kind of been discussing like what you kind of want to do for the future or is this a conversation that's very much on the back burner at the moment? Yeah, I mean like, you know, this really fucked up our, our plan. And, and uh, to be clear, like who gives a shit? compared to like the fucking trauma <laughs> that like everyone else is dealing with like it, do yeah, it doesn't yeah, fucking yeah. matter um you know like we were we were we had all these plans um but we're all healthy and you know with the exception of one of us like all able to stay employed so like all fucking fortunate for that um we 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 have like vague plans but it all really depends on like what covid happens i mean i think our next like yeah. concrete plan of what we'd like to do is come back to europe like next november um yeah i don't think that's gonna be possible but um like that's at least where where it's at i mean like you know there are things that we want to do we want to come back to europe we want to go to brazil and tour with our friends in time and distance um we want to just play these fucking songs um to people yeah, um, yeah. you know like that's all I really want to do. Uh, but it, it's hard <laughs> to plan, you know, you know, especially because like we have a record done. Um, you know, I, I'm really envious of the people that have taken this time to like get really creative and productive. I certainly haven't, like, you know, like literally I had not played guitar um, since we recorded the record until last week. Uh, oh, wow. Because I, I was fucking tapped. Um, like I was, yeah, I, was yeah. I, I like exhausted the shit out of myself finishing this record. Um, and I still don't feel, um, inspired to like pick up my guitar and try to create something with all sort of like the low grade fucking trauma that we are all living through. Um, but we also have like a new record out. Um, so, yeah, yeah. so I think we're just going to like have presumptive plans in the future and just be at, be okay with canceling them. Um, mm. Cause I'd rather, I'd rather get excited about a plan in the future and have to cancel it, but then have nothing to look forward to. Um, yeah. Cause I, I, I am really, I'm, I'm looking forward to just fucking playing this record on, on Saturday when we do our live stream, where again, I don't think more than like 10 people are gonna watch. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't really watch live streams, um, you know, uh, but you know, uh, even, even if the internet shits out in the first minute, um, and we're just playing to ourselves, like I, I'm still looking forward to that because I think at the very beginning of this band, at least for me, and I think I can speak for everyone else. Like it's just been about like having that release, um, yeah, just yeah. To, to, to play for like 20, 30 minutes even if, if it's like a hundred people in the room or like five, like, yeah, like it, that's been sort of the most important thing after that. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I hope I would fucking love to be able to go on tour next summer. Um, 
you yeah, know, yeah. I would be, especially because I'm saving up a lot of vacation right now, so I can. And, um, you know, I, I would really love to do that, um, especially because I, yeah. I think it'd be interesting to see what shows are like after this record's out. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, you know is it going to be, is it, are they going to be bigger? Are they, are people going to know these songs? Are people going to care? Um, especially when like everything's dead. I mean, I honestly expect the entire punk scene to be replaced by everyone's cool new quarantine bands um <laughs> in like a year from now which is which honestly is it, it kind of feels like it's like revel it's like revolution summer uh, it's revolution quarantine yeah where everyone writes new bands <laughs> yeah. um and like i'm excited to see what like younger kids are doing um but i just want to play these songs um yeah soon but also safely uh, you know we've yeah you know, we've certainly like talked like well what if we did like an outdoor generator show and we're like, that's so irresponsible. That's so dumb to do. Uh, <laughs> but like, hardcore bands are doing that in places. Like, yeah, yeah. It's so fucking stupid um, and irresponsible and fucked up um, and, and so shitty. Um, so, like, you know, as desperately as we want to play, like, we want to wait till it's responsible. I mean, you know, yeah. We, we, we all even like feel slightly like, we're playing a live stream where there's going to be like seven of us in a room. Is that a good idea? Um, yeah. yeah. You know, I've invited people to come watch us provided they wear like a full on hazmat suit. I'm like, cool. Like if you want to wear that <laughs> yeah. and like, we're good to go. But like you get a leak, you got to go. Um, but no. <laughs> so I think right now it's, it's just like a lot of like daydreaming and planning for the inevitable. Yeah. Inevitable. Um, and you know, but there's also so much fucking shit going on um otherwise that yeah. like even if we could play shows um you know how much of it would we be doing um and and again going back to the beginning of this conversation it's only going to get worse um yeah you know until november and even through november like i don't see at least in america like things getting any better um yeah it's just going to get more fractured more violent um like really uncertain um you know it's like it, it truly feels like i'm living the podcast series it could happen here um <laughs> yeah. like we're we're in like episode like near the we're at the end of episode one um so you know like episode two is right around the corner um yeah. so it's you know fuck <laughs> no worries right chris how i like to end these is to ask my guests what their favorite song is but with a little bit of a twist okay. and this is going to be a bit difficult because as you said you haven't played a lot of yeah. your songs live yet but what's your favorite farm song that you like to play live and why um i would probably say To the moon and back off the new record um yeah just because like i think that that i think that was one of the earlier songs we wrote and we struggled with it a little bit with all these little tweaks but i think it i think it's a song that cat wrote about a very personal experience that i think is applicable to a lot of people that a lot of people can sort mm. of like understand um, so I think there's that universality on like a very important topic. And, but I also just think like musically, it was one of the more like diverse songs that we wrote. 
Um, yeah. That stood out. And, you know, it, it's very clearly the last song you put on the record. Um, like, we knew that from very <laughs> yeah. like, this is how the record has to end. But, like, I, I like it, um, you know. And, and, you know, I think, I think that's been one of the songs that people have really, like, focused on the record. Uh, beyond that, it would be, it would, of course, be all talk off the seven inch yeah because uh, like i i will never write a song that's that good <laughs> again uh, <laughs> I, I, like from the moment i wrote it uh, it was like the seventh song we wrote i was like fuck i can like this is this is a good song like i don't feel like self-conscious <laughs> about it and it's been something that people have really sort of like latched onto, and it's always like what i would give to play that song in denver colorado right now is yeah, it's, un yeah. It's, it's unspeakable um because it's a song that that just feels great that like people really like really just go off to and, and just just nice um it was it was the first song that we had that people responded to um yeah when we were starting as a band we just didn't want everyone to leave the room um so yeah you know i think i think yeah, I answered, I cheated at your question, but I think those would be the two songs. The two bomb <laughs> songs that I love, that I would like to play. And we have played To The Moon uh, a couple of times before it was like fully finished, but now like in its final form. Um, yeah. I really love it. And, you know, uh, you know, I think Derek from Defeater's vocal part is is really cool addition on top of it. Um, so I, I just think it's just, it's just a great song. I think, ever, I think it's a song where I, I think everyone sort of like put in their own little special thing. I think it's perhaps probably one of the more collaborative songs. Um, mm. So like, I think it's just, it's just a, it's just a really good song to play for personal perfect. reasons, I think. Yeah. Perfect. Chris, thank you very much for, for being so accommodating with your time. Yeah. It's been a really cool chat. Yeah, yeah. I really appreciate thanks, it. Thanks for, thanks for talking to me. No worries. Take care, my friend. Take care. Bye. Bye. so there we have it folks again a massive thank you to chris for taking some time to have a little chat with me um as mentioned during the the chat and at the beginning the video for farms live stream uh, will be in the description notes along with all of farm social media platforms um and we'll also put a link to the thieves guild ep because i think everyone should go check that out because if you like your sort of uh, early 2000s screamo revival stuff like circle takes the square and things like that then i think you dig it um gonna keep this outro very brief but just want to say as always whether this is the first time you're listening or the 162nd time listening really appreciate it but please if you can subscribe rate and review it really really does help us i know i say, say it a lot but in a world where everybody has a podcast you need to do something to stand out so i want to try and do that anyway Thank you for stopping by the Justin Inside podcast and I'll see you soon.